asked to try everything. And so my uh, the woman who became CEO, she wasn't the CEO at the beginning. She was the, the general merchandise manager. Kay Krill, um, who became a real, really big influence in my life, um, she used to laugh at me because I used to ask to try everything. So <laughs> I would ask for everything. Things that I knew nothing about, things that, um, things that I was really good at. Um, but I love to be on one of the great things about whether it's a small company or a large company is that there are usually committees or teams working on some project. And I loved to work on project teams that it was an amazing way to experience something. I think especially today when companies, for whatever reason, tend to make jobs very siloed and very specific, one of the best ways to experience different fields and different types of um, specialties is to work on a project team. Hey, and welcome to the Role Models Podcast. I'm David Noel. Role Models is a series of conversations with inspiring people. We capture and share the stories of the people we look up to, how they got to where they are, the lessons learned along the way, the decisions they made, and the challenges they've tackled. My guest in this episode is Lisa Fiedelholz, who for almost three decades has held leadership positions in women's fashion and retail. For the past 20 years, Lisa has was an executive for Ann Inc., where she was responsible for group-wide sourcing and supply chain. In our conversation, Lisa reflects on some of the key things that she's learned over the course of her career, from learning how to sell, how to lead, how to manage, how to speak in public, how to negotiate. This was a great episode for me personally. I learned a lot from Lisa and uh, love that she transmits some of her wisdom with us. Um, this is the Role Models Podcast. This is episode four, and this is Lisa Fiedelholz. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you. Lisa, you've spent 28 years in uh, women's fashion, uh, which is a super long time. And uh, of those 28 years, you spent 20 years at Anne Inc., uh, which is also a long time in a world <laughs> You're where... you me feel very old. No, no, no. It's not about that. It's just about, I think, where I was go I'm getting to is, uh, is that in a world that is so fast mm -hmm. and where average tenures in companies, um, it depends on the industry, but I think in the tech industry where I'm from, it's about hovers about two years, mm -hmm. right? So 20 years is a really long time. And yeah. we'll dive a little bit more into that and um, how you get to spend 20 years and develop as a leader in, in, in Inc. And um, well, thanks uh, for being on the show. And then you recently left the company. So yes. as recent as four months. So my first yeah. question would be, how does it feel to leave a company after 20 years and 20 years in, in fashion? Um, how does that feel? Uh I feel lucky. It feels amazing, especially because um, my particular situation, I'm very thankful for how it worked out. Uh, I had a very close relationship with the CEO of the company. And when it occurred to me that it was time to leave, that it, my time was up, and for two reasons, both personally and also when I looked at it from a practical point of view and what he needed to do on his team, I just knew that there wasn't a place for me that he shouldn't, he didn't need me on the team anymore. So I was able to go to him and have a conversation 
And this is this is back a while ago, and we started to talk about it. So the most important thing for me as a leader, and also emotionally, because of my attachment to my work and to my team, was to be able to do it in the right way. You know, so I was able to work with him quietly and unwind things. And, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, after 20 years, do you want to have a celebration or, you know, oh, it's a big deal. And in my mind, the thing that was most important to me is that a perfect scenario would be if I could just quietly leave and that people would feel comfortable, they would know what was happening. Um, and then I have to say, I have to admit, you know, I, it was sort of a roller coaster of emotions because at first was that when I first said those words to him, it was scary. But then, um, as I started to figure it out and I'm, uh, part of me is that I'm an operations person at heart. So I started to look at my list and to cross things off the list and do things and get set. But then when I hit December, um, I had that feeling of sort of buyer's remorse where I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do with myself? You know, my identity and all these things. And um, luckily, the way that we had planned it is that my family and I, we all went away to um, California to go surfing and be by the ocean and just to do something different um, after the Christmas and Hanukkah and New Year's. So... Um, all I can say is that I woke up on January 4th here in New York, we had flown in very late. And uh, I woke up that morning and I just thought, Oh, this feels perfect. It just felt right. You so I didn't have that. I wasn't sad. I didn't feel scared. It just felt great. You mentioned that when uh, you were leading up to, to your time leaving there, uh, in the conversation with the CEO, you said that you mentioned you were scared to yeah. have the conversation. What was the what was that fear? Well, the fear was that I had done something well for a long time, and I was going to give it up. And it was, you know, it was my identity. And, um, and there at for a moment, there had been a chance that I would take on uh, a different type of role, a, a perhaps a bigger role at the company, and that didn't come to fruition. And um, I had promised myself um, that I would then look for something else, because I knew it was time. I knew I knew that my time was up. And so it was that very personal fear of, you know, can I do this? What happens when I do this? How how do you know that uh, it was time? Um, boy, I wish that there was some sort of like factual balanced checklist that I could, you know, some checklist that I could give, but it wasn't that it was just, I knew it in my heart. And and it relates to something that that um, that has guided me throughout my career and being in a company for a long time is this idea of reinvention and sometimes reinvention, sometimes having to fire myself from what I was doing. And um, and in this moment, it meant departing from the actual company. And um, and so I just knew it in my gut and I knew it in my heart and I knew it was time. We'll get back to it um, because it's there's way more uh, to talk about there. But um, start at the beginning. Like, where are you from? I am from. I'm from around here. I grew up in northern New Jersey in the Fort Lee Cliffside Park area. My um, mother is European. My father was American, and so they decided to settle here. And I grew up in the same. Even though New York City is a very big city, for me, this has been sort of my the center of my universe um, because of where my family was from. I got to travel a lot, uh, but 
but from here. And so I, I moved from being born in northern New Jersey and living in Manhattan and going to school in Manhattan for a long time to ending up here in Brooklyn. How was it uh, growing up in or, in or around a city like New York? Uh, it was amazing. I mean, my, my parents were great about um, taking us to different things and music and theater. And um, they were very... Um, my parents were both, uh, my mother and my stepfather were very sort of studious people. And so they liked us to experience a lot of things. Um, and there were some that were funny, like some of my favorites were, um, as a young child, going to um, the Cloisters uh, in Fort Tryon Park. And I was obsessed with, um, I was obsessed with like the, the, uh, the, the, oh my gosh, I can't remember what they're called, but the little leftover pieces of saints, like the fingernails and the hair. <laughs> like I loved going there and listening to the music and seeing the tapestries and looking at all of those things and also going to all the museums. So it was great. A lot of art and a lot of music in our life. Um, Do you have a favorite then, museum? Um, probably, gosh, I would have to say not, it's really difficult to say right now. I would say it's probably the Brooklyn museum right here because it's got such an eclectic collection of things, but down deep, I think it's still the museum of natural history because it's just one of those places where you can just wander and get lost in the place. Was this also your favorite as a child? Um, actually, I have mixed feelings about it as a child. I think that that's one of my favorites now because of my children going there so much. But I remember, um, for whatever reason, my parents loved this one exhibit that had a lot of um, smells in it growing up, and it gave me headaches all the time. <laughs> so, so I don't know. It's a very strange thing when as a child, you don't like something, but then as an adult, you do like there's this long appreciation of it somehow that happens. Yeah, I don't know why that is. Um, you, uh, your bio says that you lived and grew up near water. Yeah. Um, why is water or beaches and oceans important to you? Um, well, the lucky part is that growing up here and where I did as a child, we could see the Hudson River and the, you know, islands and everything. And people, I think, often forget that that New York essentially is a group of islands. Um, but probably the most impactful was that my grandparents owned a home in um, East Hampton. In Long Island. And that, of course, was at a time when it was not as developed and it was a lot of farmland, um, but just absolutely pristine and beautiful. Um, and my my mother and my my biological father went through a very difficult divorce. And um, for whatever reason, it just was a place where the family could get together and it was really peaceful there. So it felt from a very young age, it just felt like home more than any other place felt like home. Um, and I've always felt comfortable swimming. My grandfather used to take us probably not so safe, but past the break and swim us out on his back. And so that's where I learned to swim and grow up and where I found the most peace in my life. In what way would you say your um, early influences of growing up near water and oceans mm -hmm. and growing up in a city like New York, that is the, um, culmination of all things cultural and, yeah. and energy and uh and creativity how would you s describe those living those surroundings to shape you and what influenced you um throughout your career uh wow interesting i think i think more than anything else what water represents to me is freedom and when i tend to be a, a an intense person and so there is something There's a marriage between um, 
the intensity with which I do things and how I live my life. And even as a really young kid, I could be a little bit sort of focused and obsessive about certain things. Um, water represented something, um, represented the balance to that. So just this complete freedom. Um, and I've even found that when I've spent time in cities that are landlocked, I start to feel sort of, you know, not physically itchy, but sort of that, that mental sort of itchiness where I, where I like to be near that openness. And, and what it's actually culminated in is that I've ended up, um, especially through the eyes of my children, wanting to protect those spaces. And so I've spent a lot of time, whether it's through my job, um, trying to do things from a sourcing and a sustainability perspective, or working with nonprofits to protect those spaces. Because if each one of us doesn't, then who does? So, um, so it's been quite a, quite a journey. And, um, and I still, I still go out there. And when I touch my feet on the sand and on the water, I feel like everything is okay. Talk about your journey into uh, women's fashion. Uh, well, so originally, when I was a teenager, um, I used to love to draw and sketch, and and did a lot, of, a lot, a lot of artwork. Um, my family did not think of art really as a um, as a vocation, you know. So they thought it was a great intellectual pursuit and something wonderful to do. Um, and at the time, I was very, um, I was very studious, very, um, very shy, very, uh, very influenced by my by my family. And so, instead of studying at art school, I went to study at um, at Columbia and studied uh, mathematics and art history. Um, but I could not get the fashion piece out of my mind, and um, and I had a job. Uh, down in Wall Street for an insurance company, and I tried to do that, but I would get um, yelled at all of the time because of what I wore. And these were days when, amazingly now, it's funny to think about, but women were meant to wear skirt suits, like navy skirt suits and tan pantyhose and all of that, and that was not my thing. I like to shave my head. And What would people yell? <laughs> they, well, they, I'm saying yelling. But it would it would be to get reprimanded. So they would they would tell you, you know, you're not wearing appropriate clothing. Your hair is not appropriate. Um, Who would say that? The 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 leaders of the company, most often, and most often men um, too. And and that was a time too when I think identity wise, when women worked in businesses like that down in Wall Street, they also very much their clothing identified much towards masculine. So it was the suit, right? It was the, the, the ubiquitous suit. And I just couldn't um, take it. I wasn't happy. So I, uh, there's, a, there's a newspaper, which still exists now online, called Women's Wear Daily. So I started to read Women's Wear Daily and read all about the trades, all about fashion, retail, manufacturing. And I went and got a job for a small designer and, and became the assistant to the president and started to learn by doing everything. Um, and my parents were horrified. <laughs> mean, meanwhile, my mother is the one who taught me how to sew, how to knit, how to make fabric, you know, so that's the irony of it. So what, what was the, how long did you work at this uh, first, first company? job? Um, I worked at that first company, I think, for about two years. I worked there and it was amazing. And still I'm in contact with the woman um, whose label it was. What, what was some of the key learnings? So you come from... 
studying mathematics and art history and uh, and then uh, kind of first stint into Wall Street and um, learning how <laughs> how that world work works and then jumping into 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 fashion. What are some of the the learnings from these these first two years? More than anything else, for me was to do what I love that I just couldn't I couldn't bear um, being around or being in a situation where I didn't feel free and where I didn't feel like I could express myself um, and and I'm a believer in corporate culture it's not that I don't believe in that it's just that corporate culture for me was not the right corporate culture for me at all and uh, I needed to be in a place that was more artistic. But the thing that I did learn uh, is that I'm also very good at math and finances and things like that. And so what I also learned is that to find something where I could do both, where I could be creative and use, um, use the analytical side of my brain was equally as important. Um, that early in your career, when you say you wanted to do something that you love, um, is it can you share some advice about how to find what you love because it's well first first of all i think in um one of the things that worries me sometimes and i am saying this now a little bit as a parent is that um there's this sense of perfection you know especially and it exists it exists with all kids but especially with young women with young girls and i think it's incredibly important to try different things and that's how I think you find in my case, I didn't, um, although I knew that I loved art. And as I mentioned before, I love to sketch and draw. Um, I didn't understand how important it was in my life until I experienced something different. Some people wake up and know they want to be a doctor from the time that they're, you know, eight years old. That was not my experience. So for someone who doesn't know, I think you have to try and fail, um, and try until you feel it. And, and, and again, um, this is something that I'll probably <laughs> repeat several times during this conversation, is that it's, it's about a feeling. You, you know it. One of my favorite questions to ask people when I interview them is, tell me something that they're obsessed with or passionate about right now. And if you can't name it, it's hard for me to know how you can work in a creative business. You know, So it's important to, to be sensitive to know that. Talk to us about how you bridge those uh, how you bridged it like how do you get from these uh, this first job these two years in this first company to uh to anning so um i then let's see so after i worked at charlotte neuville i then took a job with a company which was called scene design um c-y-g-n-e so like swan in french and companies like this existed back then they were called third-party companies or product development companies because many big corporations didn't have vertical structures. And what was amazing about these companies, it, and things come full circle, more of them exist again now today, is that they did a lot of creative work, a lot of travel, creative work. And I got to go, and some of it is just about identifying, you meet a person and you know that they can be a good mentor to you. And I met this this gentleman, Harold Lynn, and um, and he had another partner with him. Her name was Trish Robinson. And they were both, um, they were great people. They had been in the business for a really long time, and they were trying to build a new part of the business. And when we met, something clicked. 
And I just decided to go and work with them. And they gave me a lot of freedom to learn how to develop things, sell things, um, which is another great thing to learn no matter what you do in life is to be able to sell. And it was, um, it was an amazing experience working with them. And so that's, I, I ended up working for Scene Design and Scene Design had a, had a relationship with Ann Inc. I actually did nothing with the Ann Inc. account at that time. That was another part of the business. But I knew of Ann and what Ann was really famous for. Um, and still to this day, people will say this, is that when people go and get their first job or first interview, they would go to Ann Taylor to get their first suit and that it made it made people feel great, you know, that they put that suit on. And around that time, I started to um, I started to formulate in my mind this idea that we weren't just making clothes. I loved personally, I loved the art of doing that. Making something is really fulfilling and satisfying, but more so to make somebody feel good about themselves. And so that started to really grow within me. Um, and then uh, essentially what happened is that Ann Inc. decided to become a vertical company. And uh, because we sort of knew of each other, they offered me a job. And I loved that. I loved those stories that people had such an identification with Ann that, you know, their, their first suit made them feel so good. And so I was proud to go work for them. What does vertical uh, mean? So vertical means that a corporation decides to, or a corporation company, any anyone decides to do everything in the manufacturing, the design and manufacturing and the product development of the, of the clothing or shoes or jewelry, whatever it is, all the way through to shipping it to the store and then selling it. And in today's uh, environment, it also means online and, and so vertical. So it's end to end from sourcing, yep. production, all the way all through. The way through uh, all yeah. the way through. All the way through. Which a lot of people at the time believed that you could get a lot of efficiency by doing that. Before we move on, I want to go back to one thing you said. Uh, that's one of the most important things for you to, uh, that, you, that you recommend people to know is how to sell. Yeah. So I, wanna, I don't want to let that go because to yeah. me, uh, I, I don't know much about selling. I don't know if I'm a good seller or if I have good selling skills, but what makes a good uh, salesperson? I think what's most important, and some people, sometimes people have a reaction to that, you know, this, this, the, the word to sell, but you could easily replace it with um, the phrase to influence. And I think it's very important, two parts. One, to be able to stand up in front of people and tell them that you do something, have something, make something that you think that they should have and that it's a value. Um, and value could be money, but it could be other things as well. And so to be able to express that in some way. How did you learn it? Um, I learned it by doing it. Uh, you know, I happened to have a, a boss, Harold, who, <laughs> who was one of the most amazing salesmen I've ever seen. But he made you stand up and do it. Like there was no, there was no conversation. There wasn't an, I don't feel comfortable. He just made you do it. And, and that's probably one of the best things. Um, I don't know that I wasn't the kind of leader that, um, Harold was. I like to, you know, uh, perhaps walk people through it a little bit more, but it's incredibly important. When I was younger, I used to do a lot of public speaking and debate. So I didn't feel um, I didn't feel nervous about talking in front of people ever. So I felt very comfortable about that. But what's different about uh, when you learn how to debate when you're younger is that it's more 
you're arguing over something, using facts, etc. When you're selling or when you're influencing someone, it's different because you're trying to convince them, you know, to your to your side and to to have them understand something. So it takes a lot more finesse. Um, so I think even if 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 it's something that you're not going to do for your own job, um, I think it's something that's important to learn to do. For someone listening to this and saying, okay, I get it. So selling is about influencing. It's about uh, learning by doing. It's about going out there and standing up there and then trying to, to, to influence people to, to buy something or to do something. What is something you would tell them to do? Like what is a practical step-by-step guide that you would say, hey, if you, if you want to learn how to do it, here's... here's yeah. What you what you recommend? Well, one, and it relates to the whole concept of loving what you do, is that it really helps if you like what you're selling. <laughs> it really helps. Um, very hard to sell something that you don't like. Um, people do it all the time. Um, so, but my recommendation would be like what you do. Then, then what you should do is start small. So start with. Um, Start with smaller groups. Start with people that you know. Uh, be able to um, to get up in front of um, a, a friendly audience, if you will, and work with them because that helps. Especially if, for whatever reason, if you're if you've either never done it before or you're nervous about speaking openly, and then have people give you constructive criticism. It makes you know it makes a big difference. Um, I had a, a funny uh, a friend who told me a funny story. He showed me a tape of something that he had done one time, and he didn't even realize he was doing it. But while he was presenting to this team and and essentially influencing, selling them, he was holding on to the podium like for dear life, and he didn't even realize he was doing it. But then when he saw the tape and then he was like hugging the podium, he realized how completely uncomfortable it looked. And and you want to make people feel comfortable. So it's really important that whether you're whether you'd rather get feedback from friends or feedback from colleagues or feedback from your boss to take constructive criticism and have them tell you and then just build, you know, so do a little bit more, try it again, get more feedback. I'm a big believer that once you do something once and and you have no said to you one time or you get really good criticism one time, the second time is so much easier. And so it's just like, if you just break down the door the first time, it's a whole lot easier. You mentioned public speaking. And I think it's a very interesting one, because I, I read this book by um, Chris Anderson of TED. He wrote this book called TED Talks, and um, where he condensed like all his learnings about working with, you know, hundreds of, of TED speakers. And he opens up the book by saying that the fear of public speaking is more developed than the fear of sharks, right? Wow. So, um, how, how do and and I think you know my time at SoundCloud, uh, public speak public public speaking was a big topic for you know men and women alike of becoming more confident and be, being a speaker. Why do you think how how do you think you can overcome this fear yeah. of public speaking? Maybe why why is this fear so developed? Well, I think, um, first of all, it has to do with self-consciousness, I believe. It has to do with how comfortable you feel about your mind, your convictions, but also your physical self, your body. And it's very hard to, um, to let go of that and be put on a stage, essentially. And it triggers something in people. 
you know, it's this absolute exposure. Um, I used to think at my job that actually the designers had the, it was the worst for them to public speak because they, they were taking the thing that they created, putting it in front of everybody, getting criticism and doing the public speaking at the same time. Um, so I think that it's one of those things. There are some people that are not meant to do it, but I really believe I, I'll give you an example. There's a, an amazing woman who is um, on the team at Anne right now. And she's a technical designer and a designer, an incredibly creative person, sensitive person, uh, had a tough time with public speaking with one of her prior uh, with one of her prior leaders. And part of it is that her prior leader wanted her to fall into a very specific mold, you know, sort of like suit professional woman. Some of us at work would fall, call it lipstick and pearls, you know, so and if you saw Allison that has nothing to do with who she, you know, who she is, how she dresses. Um, I'm a believer in something different. I think that when people are authentic speaking, even if they're nervous, the audience, people, the people that are being sold to can be won over because it's real versus putting on sort of a fake, um, fake show. It's kind of like the charm of when somebody trips or falls or spills something and they just sort of gracefully move past it. Um, but that comes back to feeling comfortable with yourself. So you need to, you, you need to set yourself up for success, wear something that makes you feel comfortable. As I said before, you're selling something or you're influencing something that you feel comfortable about. Know what you're talking about. Don't talk about a subject that you don't know about. And if you put all of those things together, it's going to be an awful lot easier than not doing it. But there's something that's, I think, even more important is that is trust is incredibly important. Trust in yourself, trust in the people that you're talking to. Um, one of my favorite things to do still when I go and speak, because sometimes I'll speak in front of large amounts of people and I get nervous, um, but there's something to be said for taking joy in the nervousness, like breathing in all the energy of the people that you're going to speak to and knowing that they're there that they want you to succeed. I mean, that, I, I really believe that from a human nature perspective. Most people don't want to see somebody fail. They're rooting for you. So like breathe it in, absorb it, and then put out there the best thing that you can do. And then do all the smart stuff, like do your homework, prepare. Um, but I'm also not a fan of overly preparing, you know, reading from a script, um, uh, having everything perfect, because I think something gets lost when you do that. And so it's a very, it's a very interesting thing. I've spent a lot of time with people coaching people through speaking publicly. One of the best things, and I'll go back to the mother thing for a second, is that when kids are young, it's so important to have kids do things in front of other people and have them feel comfortable. Because if they do that when they're younger, it's so much less of a mystery when they're older. What's an example for that? So the, the, um, at the school where my kids go, they have, everybody has to write something and do public spoken word. And everybody has to read pieces of poetry. Every single kid in the school has to do this. And they have this all throughout their entire education where they have to, they have to complete these tasks. And there obviously are some people that are meant to be like orators. Like you, you think about um, President Obama, you know, that's, 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 let's call him like number one, you know, very gifted speaker, <laughs> very yeah. gifted speaker. 
But then there are people who are just great at having conversational um, uh, speeches and, and presentations to folks. And I think every, it's possible for everybody to do that. And if kids are taught that at an early age, then it demystifies it. And I think the fear becomes less. It's like swimming. You know, a lot of people, um, I love spending time in the ocean. And oftentimes people will say to me, aren't you scared of sharks? <laughs> and I say to them, I, I don't ever think of sharks when I'm, when I'm swimming in the ocean. But part of that is because I was made to feel comfortable swimming in the ocean from the time I was tiny. Um, but I think that's true, true of people. It's like, I'm a believer that it's public speaking, and everyone should learn how to swim and ride a bike like those are <laughs> Those are like three important things. It almost feels like those are two uh, two ways to put yourself in uncomfortable situations, yeah, and yeah. then and then have to work through it in a way, and yeah. that's that's the way to grow in a way. Yeah, so we talked about selling, we talked about public speaking. Um, let's get back to Ant and Inc. Sure. Where uh, where are we now on the timeline? Um, you just joined. You to, I just joined. Yeah, I um, I joined. I specifically. The irony is that I went from working, you know, at this Wall Street place, and specifically, I started working on the area. <laughs> I started working in the suit area at Ann Inc. and not just suits, but all like jackets, suits, pants, all of what what um, people would call wear to work, or you know, dressier clothing. Um, and I started to to uh, work with a team doing everything from product development, which is working together with the design group and especially working with mills and fabric, which I, which I love. And um, all the way through to having it manufactured at factories. Um, and, and my other love uh, that, that has uh, stayed with me all these years too, is that working on a job where I get to travel is a great joy. I actually think um, my whole family is happier when, <laughs> when I get to travel because I love um, being out and about. And one of the great things is that that period of time, especially, I got to spend huge periods of time. And, and then we got to manufacture in Europe, which was incredible. So we did a lot of manufacturing in Europe of textiles and also some clothing but, and shoes and leathers, but then um, all the way through Asia. And so I spent many years, I don't know, I probably, you know, 10 years of working on that intensely and spending a lot of time, um, a lot of time working on the manufacturing side, not just the development side. And that was amazing. Um, but also what I would also term that time too was a time when I asked to try everything. And so my, uh, the woman who became CEO, she wasn't the CEO at the beginning. She was the, the general merchandise manager, Kay Krill, um, who became a real, really big influence in my life. Um, she used to laugh at me because I used to ask to try everything. So I would, <laughs> I would ask for everything, things that I knew nothing about, things that, um, things that I was really good at. Um, but I love to be on one of the great things about whether it's a small company or a large company is that there are usually committees or teams working on some project. And I loved to work on project teams. That it was an amazing way to experience something. I think especially today when companies, for whatever reason, tend to make jobs very siloed and very specific, one of the best ways to experience different fields and different types of um, specialties is to work on a project team. So I got to work on everything from you know software implementations to redoing the financial, you know, log sheet to 
like crazy things, um, to technical design, to, um, to working on process and organization structures. And that was great. And I think, um, during that time period, um, I, there was a time when I was a director and I felt that I was ready to become a vice president. And I asked to become a vice president 11 times before I got the job. And the first time was awful. Like, I just remember all of those typical things, like sweating, being so nervous, didn't sleep at night um, until uh, I went in and asked for the, I asked for the job and I was said no to. Um, But then after I finished, I thought, oh, that wasn't so bad. A couple of things here and uh, um, that I want to dive deeper is you say you wanted to try everything. Yeah. Is this, so is this something that you've decided at that time at the beginning of your career that you said, okay, I will now go and <laughs> ask for this uh, yeah. or try everything and ask to try everything uh, moving forward? Is this an advice you received? Like, where does this come from? Um. <laughs> I think some of it, some of it is just having a curious nature. Uh, I've always had a curious nature and it goes back to what I love doing. Um, I like making things. So I like to understand how things work. So there's part of it that's nature. And then part of it is having had good, um, good leaders, good supervisors who it was a combination of saying, hey, why don't you try this? Why don't you work on this, you know, work on this committee, work on this team, um, to somebody like Kay, who gave me much more specific advice and said, you know, just keep on trying, do this, I want to put you on this team. One of the pivotal moments for me is that she went to go work on a part of our company that was tiny. And and she and, and she had a big job, she was over um, a part of the business called Ann Taylor, which was the original business. And she asked me to come over to the smaller part of the business. And when I said yes, everybody was like, you're crazy. Don't do it. Um, but I trusted her. You know, I really, I trusted her advice. I trusted her advice in business. So to answer your question, it was sort of that combination of um, just curious nature. But then also, um, I can say now, choosing my choosing my supervisors and leaders wisely, we don't always have that ability but when you have the ability to choose who you're going to work with you should take it because they can have an enormous influence yeah i think in that's, your great. Life. that's great advice um, another thing that i was curious about is that you uh or that we we i mean the, the the way I see it is, is that we're moving way more into a special a world of specialists, right? And I think you mentioned something where rather than you being interested in specializing in one certain area, you're much more interested in expanding and broadening your, your skill sets of being a generalist. So how does a generalist succeed in a specialized world? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think I think that there's time for everything. I think that in that time period, for me, it really worked to be a generalist, to discover what I was good at and to experience things. I, at a later time period, I actually also spent a bunch of time sort of cleaning and letting go of things and and learning to really focus on the things that I was best at. So I really think that it's the answer is both. You have to really know what you're good at 
because the danger of being a generalist all the time is that you're just, it's sort of like that, that saying where it's just sort of an inch deep and a mile wide where you're never great at something. Um, and, but the strength is, here's what I believe the greatest strength of being a generalist is, is that you have an appreciation for what other people do because you've walked in their shoes. And so what I think, the, the way that I think a generalist succeeds is that in the best case, you should be able to identify talent, great talent, because you have a, an appreciation and an understanding for what people do and bring in that great talent and harness that great talent. Don't make the mistake of thinking that because you're a good generalist that you can do at all the jobs. That is the, that there's a real danger in being a generalist as well. And it took time for me to understand that. And there were moments in time when I, I think I mentioned this earlier, when I decided to fire myself because I felt like I wasn't doing, like I wasn't doing anybody any favors and being a, being a manager, especially starting out, it's crazy. You know, it's, nobody's a good manager starting out. <laughs> like you have to, you have to figure it out. Um, but that's a, it's a really interesting thing. I'm sometimes, I'm, I'm actually curious to, to ask you the question being on the technology side. I'm curious about, you know, is there something that worries you about, about us living in this world of being hyper specialized? Yeah, I, I consider myself a generalist as well. So that's yeah. why I was curious to yeah. hear your view on it. And I think for me, it's an, I, and I agree with you that for, for me being, for me, modern leadership is about building the system mm -hmm. um, and ideally build it yourself so you know how it is, right? Yeah. So of this is like merging this specialized uh, and generalized uh, or specialist and generalist traits and to go and to really step into the system and then, you know, putting in the different elements yourself, defining the standards, defining the processes, bringing in teams, uh, bringing in talent, developing that talent. And then at 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 uh, at the best, like to remove yourself from that system as fast as possible, yeah. and then see if it yeah. outlives you. And yeah. I think if you if it doesn't fall apart, yeah, that's when you know that you've done a good job as a leader, and you can move on to the next thing. And basically, fire fire yourself, make yourself redundant. And I think it's yeah. so counterintuitive to a lot of the business world, maybe even more traditional corporate environments where it's all about empires or yeah. uh, maintaining empires and and kind of. Uh, you know um, the the politics between those different teams and departments and empires. And I think when I look at the technology world, that tr most of the companies that I've exposed uh, been exposed to, they've they tip that around, they flip this around. They say it's actually much more about building that system, um, bringing the right people to to do their job, specialized job in that, and then moving on to building out the next thing. Because the technology world is a is a world that that moves so fast, yeah. right? Where things change so fast, where software is not a rigid thing; it it constantly evolves, and those companies grow often super um, super fast. And so, I think the best way, the best service leaders can do to your organization is to set up that system, and then and then. Um, get out of the way as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, if you try, if uh, um, I think this is one of the most important things. It's one of the things that I learned that uh, was my strength, and it certainly wasn't my strength in the beginning because it was something I had to learn, was about uh, talent and org structure, is that um, finding the best talent, being brave enough to hire people who are better than you, smarter than you, um, 
it makes a huge difference. If you can do that, and sometimes it's scary because if you're empire building, chances are you don't want to do that. But yeah. um, but I think it's, especially in creative businesses, it's incredibly important to do that. I had a chance several years back to spend a day with Ivan Schoenard at um, Patagonia. And he's a big believer and he has his own whole thing. And obviously you can read books about it, but it, which is to, is to manage by distance, you know? And so this idea of, of being a visionary and, and not that I think he would say I'm a visionary, but rather he's very sure of certain big ideas, certain trends, certain things that are incredibly important. And he has an amazing team and he'll say things like, probably his most famous case is that he'll say things like, we're going to do all organic cotton, period, by this date, not not a second later. And I know people who were on his team at the time, and they thought he was insane, but he would not let it go. And he trusted in his team, and they, in fact, did it. And so I think that those are important, really important lessons to learn um, yeah. when you have a team. One of the great companies. Yeah. How do you identify great talent? Well, I think you have to go through all the normal checklist things, you know, what's their experience, what, um, you know, what have they done? Um, and it's, and it's changing too. to your point. One of the things that, that I had to get used to is that people weren't at companies for a long time. So you couldn't just make part of your checklist like, Oh, five years at same company. You had to think about it a little bit differently and look for other signs of continuity. Um, and so, some of the things, if, if continuity was important to me, some of the things that I would look for is that, you know, are they involved in certain things personally for a long time? You know, what have they done? And you can find that when talking to a person. Um, I think the, the other thing that, um, that is important it, that is as a leader and you're picking a team or if, they're, if your team is picking a team, um, number one is to know what is the balance that I need on my team. So where are my, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And hire for my weaknesses, hire to complement my strengths. And, and that way you start to have a very balanced team. Um, I like having, I used to have a weekly leadership team meeting. I like leaving that leadership team meeting feeling worn out because, <laughs> because my team is like challenging me, arguing with me, having these conversations and there were some days where I felt really worn out, but I liked that because it meant that they were thinking, they felt confident, they were engaged. Um, the other thing that I believed, um, I believe when, when, you're, when you're hiring a team is also then let your team hire their own teams. Um, some people as leaders believe like they want to see everybody, they want to hire everybody. What I thought um, and continue to think is more important is be clear about the culture, be clear about what you want, ask the right questions of the person who reports to you, challenge them, you know, how do you feel about this? What do you think? You know, what are the pros and cons? Have them debate it through with you so that they feel comfortable if they want that input, but let them make the choice. What's the difference between a manager and a leader? Or is there a difference? Yeah, I think that I think there's a big I think there's a big difference. I think, um, the way that I think about it is, uh, is, is managers are managing something, a process, a leader is, is uh, leading people. And so I think ultimately, you know, we can talk all about different words and naming conventions. But um, and, and another thing that somebody said to me once, too, is that, you know, a leader necessitates people following you. You can't, you know, you can't if you don't, if people don't believe in you, if they're not going to follow you, 
then you could have whatever title you have. If they stop believing in you, you're not a leader any longer. So that becomes a, that's like a symbiotic relationship. It's critical. You mentioned um, it takes time to learn to be a good manager or a great manager. What do you think makes a great manager? Um, listening. Um, and that was, that was something that I, um, that was the hardest thing that I had to learn. Um, well, to, and it's in two parts. One, because I live sometimes so much in my head and I'm moving very fast, very quickly, and sort of that hyper-focused intensity is that I could have a habit of not picking, taking people along with me for the ride and not listening to their needs, not whether that's slowing down or doing something a little bit differently. So that was something that I, that I had to learn. Um, and then I love working with groups. As much as I'm in my head, I love working with teams. I do my best ideating with teams. So it becomes important that when I hire people um, and, the, and the greater portion of my team, that people feel comfortable with that. So it's, it's sort of a, there are always cultures within cultures at company. Like every single leader has their own mini sort of culture by the nature of who they are. And so I think those two parts are quite important um, to learn. And it's hard. I mean, I think that there are times when, uh, as a leader, you look at something and you're so convinced of the solution and you're watching your team do something different. And it's, I personally feel that it's very important to let your team, there are, there are moments when it doesn't matter what you believe, you've got to let them succeed or fail. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying. If you believe in what you set up, you've got to let it. Because sometimes by getting involved and changing it, you actually could break a whole lot more than just the thing they're working on. You could break, you know, to your point, you could just break the whole system if you do it. It's hard. Your time at N Inc. Um, total 20 years. Do you, is there a way to, to split into phases? Or how would you look back at those 20 years? Yeah. Um, in terms of sequences or phases or evolution or yeah. how, how do you think about that? So I think um, the first phase, of course, was just, you know, the learning phase, um, just diving deep into what I was doing as a craft and, um, and learning, uh, learning it and traveling and doing all of those things. And, and, um, and for what I do, so much of it was about the making understanding the dream that the designer had and, and figuring it out. So that was the first phase. And then the second phase, I'm going to call sort of the manager phase, was learning. I had taken on larger teams and was learning how to be a manager, learning, failing, succeeding, sort of going through that loop several times. Um, I would also say during that time period, I was also learning a lot more. In addition to the craft, which I loved, I really had to learn how to spend more time on the business side. So really understanding um, P&L, understanding what worked and what didn't, taking accountability. Uh, because I think uh, something I didn't mention earlier that's important quality in a leader is that if you lead people, never, never point your finger at an assistant and say that the assistant made a mistake. If a problem happens within your team, It, as a leader, it is my responsibility to take accountability for that. And so it was really learning how to run a business and learning those parts and learning 
between the business, learning how to be a leader a little bit, but it was more managing than anything else. Um, and then the third phase, I would say, was really trying to figure out bigger, uh, bigger entities. It was trying to figure out um, what was my philosophy around this business that I was in, in my case, retail. What was my philosophy around, um, around uh, manufacturing, supply chain? And then really importantly, you have philosophy on one side, but then how do you put it into action? And all while in, our, in the case that I lived in, being a public company, all while having to you know, answer every quarter, having analysts on your back, having to answer questions, you know, so you had your regular job, and then you had this other job, which is, you know, which is like public entity kind of job. And um, I found that part fascinating. Uh, that also that time period for me, too, um, was interesting, because at that time period, I lived through the first two time periods, uh, pretty much being single, and uh, not having kids. In the third time period, um, I started having my kids and I had I have three kids and I had them close together. And that was crazy. But it was an amazing um, learning for me, because one of the things I had to learn being a mother was that there were certain things um, I had to give up, I couldn't work the hours that I was working. And I still and my my team would even tease me today, I still work crazy hours. I love what I do. So I don't think about the hours as much. But I just had limits. And so I had to trust my team in a way that was completely different than before. Before it was like my baby. Now I had these kids. So I had to, <laughs> there was stuff that I had to let go of. And it was, it was like, I, I can't remember when I had the aha, but it was like, oh my gosh, okay, I can't do, and this was probably, it was a little bit heartbreaking for me. I can't be the maker person anymore. So I had to give up being the maker person almost completely, you know, and I loved to go and touch fabric and do things. I had to be a mom and then I had to be this corporate person and, and manage a business essentially. How do you stay engaged with one company for 20 years in a a world where people get distracted and impatient and, yeah. about these you know shiny new things on the other side <laughs> i was very um in a way lucky in another way it was sort of it was planned working for k working for i didn't mention him yet but another uh, gentleman named mike nicholson who was the coo working with them um i was given a lot of opportunity for change so that for me was it was the differentiator um, I got to do different things all the time. I think the the I went through my three phases. The fourth phase to me was about taking much bigger risk. And, you know, could I be a leader on a larger scale? What did that mean? And one of the hardest things that I did, but one of the most, um, uh, I think, one of the biggest changes for me um, as a leader was um, I went to Hong Kong for a year and uh, took over. I What I did, let me back up for a second, is that I went to these two people, the CEO and the COO, and I told them that I thought that the org structure was incorrect and the process was incorrect and that, that I thought we had an opportunity to work differently. And um, 
and it turned out to be more pivotal than I even knew at the time. Um, it uh, became an opportunity for them to say, well, why don't you go and fix it? And, I, you know, what I decided, which is a little different than I think most people might decide, is uh, my kids stayed here, uh, my husband stayed here, and I went to Hong Kong for a year and did the work. And it was incredibly hard. I still think of when I, um, when I had to tell my children that I decided to do this. It was, it was heartbreaking. I don't know that I would do it again. But it was, um, for me, I've never gotten my, I never got my MBA. I never did that. But to go and to do something, um, I was taking essentially a completely different job, you know, and so I worked for a company for 20 years. But they gave me these opportunities to do these things. And, um, and the part that actually I'm remembering now too, um, the other part that was incredibly difficult is so there was the, the most difficult was telling the kids. But the other part is that during this time, I also had to negotiate the terms of my job with them. And these are two people that I've known. And so the hard thing about 20 years is that not Mike, um, because he was newer to the company, but Kay had seen me grow up. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It makes it sound like I was 17, which I was not <laughs> when I started the company. But um, to go and stand there and negotiate with them and refuse their first two offers and say, I will not do it under those terms. And I kept at them about the terms with which I would do the job. And, um, uh, and I stuck to my guns. And, um, and they, in the end, uh, they accepted my terms. Um, and that's something that I think is incredibly important for women to, uh, to know to do. And this is not always the case, but I think that there's been enough written about this, that it's important. The tendency is that women will not like ask for something or negotiate hard for themselves and it's really important to do really important to do for people who hear this and who around the idea of negotiation right um refusing an offer twice um requires you to be able to walk away yeah if the the third offer is not yeah good talk a bit about that like how do you get how, how do you set that up? Like mentally, how do you prepare for this? How do you negoti negotiate? How do you get yeah. uh, comfortable with the idea that you eventually could walk away from, from that? Yeah, I, I think you, you were talking about public speaking before. I think if anybody has the opportunity, and there's a lot of good actually free classes out there to, to do, like you can go to universities and stuff, is to take a class in... Um, to take a class in negotiation um, because it's a skill. And, and some people do it naturally. Like, you know, I like to go to the flea market and negotiate. But when you're talking about big scale, being able to think about what is your, what is your most desired outcome? What is your least desired outcome? What would you put in the middle? And then also for your own self, knowing what the hierarchy um, is of choices. I will choose this. I will not choose that. You cannot go into a room. I would not recommend it with a CEO and a COO, not being absolutely sure of where you are. And some of it is also ethical. And I say that because what's more important, you know, money, family, short term, long term, 
you need to be very clear about what those things are walking into the room. Otherwise, it can start very quickly. The place that your your heart will want to go to, or in my case, is is the emotional things. And while those are important, you also have to be very clear on the facts, which of course can be tied to the emotional things, but you have to be very clear about that. And, um, and for me, the, the, my grandfather said something to me when I was really little, which is, is be very clear that what they pay you is what they believe that you are worth which is something that I think is incredibly important. Know your, know your worth in terms of negotiation. But what I was clear on walking into that room, or rooms a couple of times, is that um, what was most important to me was my career, was not the money. And so I was not willing to take short-term gain in, in terms of the money. And oftentimes people will talk to you if you go overseas about because there are certain deals that you can get in terms of taxes is that I didn't care about the tax deal. What I cared about was the long term commitment of the company. So that is what I was negotiating. And I was clear about what I was going to give up, which was a year with my family in order to take my career to a certain place. And had they not been willing to agree to that, I would not have gone. Um, and so ultimately, that is what was pivotal for me. So I knew what the absolute crux was going into the room. And it was hard. It you, was very hard. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a big sacrifice for you as well, right? Like this one year, one year away from the, the family. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it, it was interesting because uh, the rationale that we had is that if it had been definitely two years, then... Um, we probably would have moved or done something. But because it was going to be a year and because I was going to be traveling all over the place, my hub was going to be in Hong Kong, that having them move and taking them out of everything that they knew and loved in their support system um, would have been kind of silly because they would have been there to make me feel better. But would they have felt better for being, you know, for being there? Um, and one of my great learnings out of that too is that um, when I made the decision, uh, or when I made the decision that I wanted to do it and to negotiate it, uh, I went to um, my friends here. Uh, I went to people at the school. I went to other folks that I knew, my my family, my mother, and her partner, and um, and I asked for their help because I knew that it was something that I couldn't do by myself. Um, and one of the people who was the greatest help to me, um, was, I mentioned him earlier was the, the last CEO that I reported to at the time he was, I was not reporting to him. Um, but he had done something similar and, um, he did something that was quite incredible during that time is that he knew what I was going through. I was very quiet about it. I didn't want to, you know, <laughs> um, it was my nature. I was not going to go into work and, you know when I was in New York for the, for meetings, I, I wasn't like, people would want to talk sometimes about my family. And I didn't want to talk about it because I felt uh, like I just needed to get through it. And, um, but he would send me notes all the time. Um, and it's one of those things, like sometimes you're given, um, you're given gifts. And it was an amazing teaching to me as a, as a leader as well, uh, that he, wrote me notes that whole time and just said things like, 
you're going to do it. You're going to get through it and it will be okay. You know, if you ever need to talk, I'm here for you to talk to. And it was so selfless um, that he did it. Um, but it was, it was incredible. And so that was my other great lesson in doing this thing was, um, was that what made it, what made it, um, livable was all these people asking for this community to help me. Um, and they stepped up. I mean, I'm talking like soccer friends, uh, you know, other families, our family down the block where my youngest daughter would go and like sleep over their house when she wanted like mom time with my friend Agneta. And, um, that is, uh, that is a special thing indeed. And I think, um, especially for women, it's incredibly important to ask for that help, you know, because it's hard to think about it. And, and what I would tell you too, is that the other amazing thing is that I had people say to me, like, I can't believe you would do this, you know, other mothers. And if it had been a man, no one would ever have said that to them. They would have been like, oh, that's awesome. You're going, you, know, you, got a, you got a promotion. You're going to Hong Kong. Fantastic. And you just have to be really sure. But it, it was what got me through it. Um, the work was the work that I knew I could do. But what got me through it was all of those people. They made, they made it possible. Let's talk about people. I know in your career um, and in your time at Anne, those 20 years, what is the importance of mentors and advisors and role models? I, I think it's um, I, I think it's incredibly important. Um, whether it's sometimes some people find like one mentor that mentors them their whole career, their whole life. That's not been my case exactly. Um, I've more found mentors that have suited for different um, for different needs. But there have been, um, as it turns out, there have been some longer term ones as well, um, which end up in many cases being like good, good friends that you can ask for for advice. I think it's um, what's really important that people, I think, sometimes miss is that it's not like a mentor shows up on your doorstep and is like, hi, I want to <laughs> mentor. mentor. <laughs> exactly. Like God or something. No, um, you have to ask you know, and you have to ask. And sometimes you, you kind of get to know somebody and it's not right. And that's okay. It's like friendships, you know, it's not right. Um, but then you have to ask and you have to be specific and you have to think about how to match your needs with the person. The other thing that I learned through some failed mentoring examples too, is that oftentimes the people that you sort of, you know, dream of that you want to go to like, Oh my gosh, wouldn't they be an amazing mentor? Um, when you when you're going to ask them for that help, you need to be specific, clear about what you're asking for, what are your needs? Because oftentimes they're very busy people and so they need you to be they need you to be concise and precise about asking. Um, but I think the most important thing is is uh, is to is to reach out and to uh, meet people. And the amazing thing that I've learned through this process too is not to not to give up so easily. Because it's, it's pretty important that if there's somebody you really want to meet, whether it's a mentor or somebody to help you with something, is to, is to not give up and really try to meet that person. Because oftentimes what I think one of the great surprises, too, is that, um, is that the giving for them is as much value as for you as, being, as getting the mentorship. 
that's the most perfect type of relationship where it's where it's complementary and it's and it's even. Um, and it, it's funny. I I asked uh, uh, the other day somebody to help um, mentor me, and I think he was a little surprised because he he's um, quite a bit younger than I am, but it was so great. And it was so timely, because the next day I had a set of meetings. And the advice that he gave me in about an hour's time was so perfect. And so on point, because I needed somebody to mentor me who had a different point of view, a more entrepreneurial, younger point of view. And I was not going to get that from somebody who was 60, 70, whatever. That's just, uh, you need to have something different. How do you for people who are uh, hearing this and saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm early in my career. I believe in the idea of, of role models and mentors. How do I, how to do this? Yeah. Like, what is it? How do I establish a good mentor relationship? Yeah. Like, are there any rules or any tips, any tricks, um, any, any contracts, um, informal, formal that you, yeah. that you, um, that you can That's advise? That's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, I think, you know, um, you should really say to yourself, what is it that you need? If you want a mentor, um, it, it's not, it's, it, in my opinion, it's not something that's just a check on a checklist so that you can say that you have a mentor. There has to be a reason why. So why do you need a mentor? For what? For what purpose? And be able to answer those questions for yourself. And then when you know the answer to those questions, what type of person who can who can be that role model for you and then start to start to figure it out oftentimes if we're lucky there might be a person within our circle or within the company who can who can um have that role i think the great thing now especially with hr teams being more modern and the thought process around corporate structures being more modern oftentimes there's more of that sort of mentor advisor thing built in at companies. Um, but that's, that's limited to that, just that microcosm. So then I think it's important to, to look outside of it. And there are so many, um, there are so many groups out there, whether you're looking for advising groups, there are great groups in most cities, where there are people who've retired, who really, they've decided that's how they want to spend their time. And it's for them, that's great, because they want to be involved, you know, so they want to stay engaged and involved. And so you can go and ask, um, another thing, something that I've done with my time now that I, that I'm taking some time off and I've been doing research is going back to my old university and going to symposiums and seminars and, and, and like literally writing down lists of people and, and making dates for coffee to go and, you know, take people out for coffee. Most people will say yes to a coffee, you know, and if, if you're flexible and you're like, Hey, I'll come to you, you know, <laughs> wherever it is, you know, so make it simple right? Make it simple. I'm, I'm a big fan, especially when you're talking about mentoring and those types of things. I mean, there are always differences. But if you can do it in person, eye to eye, being able to see somebody's eyes and talk to them, it makes a big difference, especially at the beginning. Um, and then see, you know, it's like dating, right? It's either going to work or it's not going to work. And it's or it's just like, you know, dating, you see them once a month or dating, you want to see them every single day. I, you know, it's one of those things where you have to figure it out. I don't know. I, I'm not, um, as you can tell, sort of, I think this is my theme so far is that I'm a big believer in trusting your, your heart, your gut. 
and then you figure out how how to work around that mentor. But then, but also be very clear. This is, I think, really important, especially if you're going to somebody who's more senior or more accomplished. You know, be very clear about expectations on both sides. You know, how much time do they have? How when can they see you? Don't you know? Don't bombard them with emails. You know, every single minute. But then surprisingly, I have people that I get advice from who like will love to text about stuff. So go figure. There's <laughs> different different people like different things. You mentioned earlier in the um, in the conversation, and I wanted to go back to it because I'm interested in your take on it. Is uh, you mentioned that you need to develop an idea or an understanding of what your strengths are and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are ways to find out about your strength? Uh, well, or how did you do it? Um, combination of self-reflection and also good, um, good supervisors and leaders. So ask for, um, ask for constructive criticism. Um, and, in, and I think in a best case scenario too, depends on the team that you have, or if you have a team, um, ask for your team's feedback. Are you, you know, what are you good at? What are you not good at? Uh, and then, and if it helps, think about it sort of like school, you know, there, if you truly are honest with yourself, you know what you do that's A plus, and you know what you do that's B plus, and you know what you do that's like C and worse. <laughs> and and just be and just be honest about it. And hopefully, as you start to know that you also make sure that if there's something that like, for example, I'll use one of my examples. Um, I love like big picture visionary stuff. I love certain kinds of detail. There's certain types of mathematical analytical stuff that I love, like sort of that do you, if you know the book, do you know the book Moneyball? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I love that type of analysis. And I, and I was lucky enough to work with somebody who's now at at Nike, he's so far away. Um, but uh, who's was that kind of mind? Um, is that I I need to have somebody on my team who's deliberative, um, who likes to go through like super detailed type of um, type of uh, analytics, which are not my thing, and. And that will make me crazy because those type of people will go through it like with a fine tooth comb and they'll bug you about it like a hundred times. And I need to have somebody like that on my team. And what I've learned in the beginning, it would sort of bug me. But what I've learned now is that I want that person sitting next to me in every single meeting because they're going to they're gonna be there. The other kind of person that I like to have sitting next to me in every single meeting is a really great human resources generalist who's going to say to me, did you notice that? Did you see that? Did you notice the body language? Did you did you feel that? I'm hearing this with the team. Have to have that. Because it's just not, I'm not empathetic in that way. And so it's important to have that. And so you have to be able to answer those questions yeah, for yourself. Yeah, I'm a big, 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 big fan of HR business partners in the business who are part of the leadership team of any, any leader who um, make sure that the leader has a people strategy in place, understands the yes. dynami- dynamics of the team. Yeah, big fan of that. I've seen I've seen uh, great work being done there at, at SoundCloud and um which I didn't know before. So, you know, it's a modern way to do HR and I learned learned a great deal there. Yep. Let's talk about uh you're the uh chair of a foundation. Mm-hmm. And um it's called Surf Rider Foundation. Yep. 
And uh, it's dedicated to the protection and enjoyment of the world's oceans, waves, and beaches yes. uh, through a powerful activist network. I think the network uh, now consists of 80 chapters or over 80 chapters across the, the United States with um, 50 uh, clubs um, of young people, youth clubs. Yep. Talk a bit about this foundation and your involvement there. Um, why are you involved? What is your role as a chairwoman? Um, what's what's the foundation about? What's the work? So um, it started really simply, which is that um, that at the beach that I mentioned that I grew up at, I started to notice that it became very um, less than pristine. You know, we started to see some bottles, some you know detritus from from fishermen, etc. And so um, I became um, concerned about that, and so. In the simplest sense, I got involved because I started taking my my kids. This is when uh, I don't even think I had my third yet, but my two were really little. I took them to go um, clean up the beach, and um, and what I noticed is that Surfrider was doing that all the time. You know, it's one of the it's our it's our gateway experience as an activist is to go <laughs> is to go clean up the beach, and um, I started to get involved. And what I realized is that I couldn't um, I couldn't be involved. I couldn't be involved out at the beach and be working in the city. It was too hard. But then found out they had a chapter. Here in New York, we have three chapters, one all the way out in Montauk, one in central Long Island, and one in the city. And so I started to become involved. And um, what <laughs> what I was good at is that they do a lot of like policy work, and they do a lot of um, a lot of work with the state and with different representatives in order to either keep policies in place that protect the beaches and oceans, or, or they're trying to prevent things from changing or, or policies that might be detrimental um, to the beaches. So uh, I, a lot of people didn't feel comfortable calling up public representatives or calling up the newspaper or calling up folks and I have no problem doing that. And Were so, you selling skills and <laughs> selling skills. public speaking skills? <laughs> this was the more of the annoying naggy kind of, kind of skills. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm very, I can be very um, uh, loud and threatening if I, <laughs> if I need to be. And so I was um, bugging them about this. And so we had, we went through a couple of campaigns and successful campaigns. One was to put the bigger, better bottle bill in place which is putting a um, putting a, a deposit on every bottle so that this way people will recycle bottles and put them back into being reused for other things. And New York did not have a full program in place. They only had a very small partial program. So now we have uh, we have an entire program. But it's amazing. You find out how some of the bottling companies really fight against it, you know, because the bottling companies were getting money from the state. Why that was, I don't know, but they were getting money from the state. And a lot of folks don't realize that. So um, that was in place. The other, uh, the other campaign, and there have been several like this one since, was to prevent a liquid natural gas facility but, uh, from being put into the water between New York and New Jersey. And so they, um, in that case, uh, we convinced the governors to veto it because while it could be voted in. Um, the rule was in this specific instance that not only all you needed was one governor to um, to veto it. So I got involved, and um, 
and I liked it. It was a lot of, it was fun. It was different. Um, it got me back to sort of like activist roots. Cause I, I, we hadn't really talked about this yet, but, uh, but throughout my life and it started with my, my mother was a very much an activist. I have always grown up believing in like, you know, it's your responsibility to vote, be active, have an opinion. Um, and so this was great. It combined, you know, that part of me and it also combined this love of the ocean water. And it was also, um, there, it was also a time when there was just a lot going on from a corporate perspective for me and it provided a relief. I don't know how to explain it other than that. Like it was just, it was just refreshing, you know, and people thinking differently and also, really mixed group of people so it was fascinating like working with different um folks yeah i was that. i was meaning to ask um how does how did your role at um at ann compare to uh to your role as a as a uh, member of the board how, what's the is it what's the difference or maybe yeah. what's the comparison there yeah it's really interesting is that i you know i started on the executive committee here in um in new york city and then um i was asked to join the board of Surfrider. well what's interesting is that first of all when you generally when you work in sort of a cor corporate atmosphere you know there's certain unspoken rules and there's a hierarchy and you have structures about how you do things What's interesting working with a whole bunch of activists is while you have an executive committee, and then I joined the, the national board, is that ultimately most of these individuals are either activists um, who are far harder to convince of something than a normal person. And then, um, and then on the board, being, being on the board, um, two things. One... Um, I, I became the chair of the board because of a chain of events that was a surprise. So I didn't, um, I wasn't the most prepared becoming the chair, but I also felt this real responsibility as a woman to say yes. Um, not, of course, I'm passionate about it and I believe in it, but to say yes, because there are so few women chairs. And so I was like, I need to say yes and figure it out <laughs> at the same time. And You know, it's a California-based um, uh, based group. There were a lot of like surfers, scientists on the board, a lot of um, some legal folks. Um, but these are all folks, each person independently, who's accomplished, who's opinionated, who's different. And so it was completely different than trying to manage the corporate world. What I was prepared for and was not worried about is that I had sat in front of boards before and done presentations. And, you know, there's all these fiduciary duties, you need to have financial committees, you need to make sure the P&L is right, the audit is right, so on and so forth. Like those things you can get through. But getting everybody to complete things and do things and be timely and attend things and get the kind of engagement and of course, being on a nonprofit board, part of that is also money it's a whole different world. So it was, I felt like I was thrown into like the fire because being on, being on the board, it is one of the most fulfilling things that I've ever done. Um, but it was, it was hard in the beginning. Like I, I felt that I was, and, and, the, and the funny part here too, is that I learned how to surf um, first when I turned 40 and I'd always been comfortable in the, in the ocean. And I'd always wanted to learn how to surf. I just never had. 
And for me, being on the board runs very much in parallel with my surfing. You know, it's a complete and total challenge for me. I have to be completely focused. I have to, you know, have my wits about me. I have to um, be really, um, uh, I have to really want to get to where I'm going, you know, so it's, and, and even then with all of those things, <laughs> that does not make me a good surfer. Um, it just gets me in the water, <laughs> basically. And so it's been, um, it's been fascinating. And, and I still, and I'm still the chair. I'll be the chair for another, about another year, year and a half. Um, and we're still working on it. I'm proud to say, though, I think that we've added some additional like refinement to how the board works, a little bit more formality. Um, the books are in a great place. You know, we're in the we're in the black, which, you know, the, the nonprofits, it's always a struggle. And now with the change in government, especially for environmental nonprofits, a little bit harder. Uh, but one of the things that's been incredible about this experience are the activists is that we've got this group of people who are willing to, with no pay, they're going to go fight, whether it's, you know, go protest something, clean something, um, stand outside in the rain, um, chairing an event, they're going to be there and they're going to do that. And so, you know, it's my job to figure out with this other, this group of people, how to support them and how to get that's it done. That's great. <laughs> what are skills that any young person early in a career need as a foundation to have a success, successful career? Uh, I think of oh, skills. Can I answer a little bit outside of the skill? You okay. Can, you can break the rules. <laughs> okay, good. Um, one is, is passion, you know, have passion for what you do um, because skills can be learned I think that 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 that's going to feed you. Passion's going to feed you on the good days and the bad days, especially. Um, the second, I think, is um, curiosity. Really, be be curious, and and it's hard to be curious if you're not passionate. You can, but but it it helps a lot because you're you're going to want to go the extra ten steps if you're passionate about what you do. And the third thing um, I'm a big believer in is is do your homework slash work hard. Um, there are few things that replace working really hard at something. And um, I, I don't know if you've read the, the Malcolm Gladwell book about 10,000 hours, is that I, who knows how the amount of time that it actually is, but I'm a believer in that, that just, you know, work, practice, homework, makes perfect. There's some great writings that have been done about that, that um, true creativity in art is not found in the final outcome. It's actually found in the work all along the way. In the process. In the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice you received from your mother? Oh, my mother, um, <laughs> my mother always says something to me. She she always tells me a version of um, you could do anything that you want to. I will always be here. Even, <laughs> even on um, the morning of my wedding, my mother said to me, she was like, if you decide right now, you don't want to get married. She's like, you can walk away right now. <laughs> that's, that's my mother. <laughs> She's a whole story unto herself. But I love that because, um, my mother, uh, my mother at heart is an artist, and she uh, has always made me feel like anything is possible. 
anything is possible. For people out there who feel stuck in their career, in their life, what advice do you give them? Um, the, I was just talking to a young woman that I think is quite amazing the other day about this, is that sometimes when you're stuck, what I have found is helpful is the work itself, you know, just to get to it, you know, um, some might call it making a list, others might call it, um, uh, you know, like look for inspiration in the work. But, but essentially, I think you have to, it's really important to be active. Um, I would add on to that to say too, that um, something that I've seen work for myself and for other people is to go out and to do different things. Um, uh, you know, whether it's as simple as going to see artwork or going to something that you've never gone to before. Um, like upcoming at the end of this week is the Brooklyn, God, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it's like Brooklyn Makers or Brooklyn Creative um, presentation just to go see what other people are doing and be inspired by it. Or go out and experience, you know, experience nature, experience something different differently. It's one of the things that I found both surfing and rock climbing is that because of when I found those sports, I will never be good at them, but they do something for my mind to get me out of my, you know, get me out of my head and put me in a different sort of place or presence. Um, but I think it's really important to be active. This podcast is called Role Models. Who is your role model? Well, I think it's two people. Um, one is definitely my mother. Um, she, you know, she went through a lot. She came from a very big family in Europe and decided to come to this uh, country uh, with my father. And he left very early on. And yet she decided to stay here. Um, even today, uh, she is getting her doctorate at Columbia in mathematics. And um, she never stops. Uh, meanwhile, she like knits the most gorgeous hats and gloves and all sorts of crazy things for the kids and looms things on her loom. And, uh, you know, she's forever creative. Um, but I look at her and, and, um, and that, that is from a young age. She's, she's my most um, profound uh, role model. Um, but then the other one I mentioned before is, is Kay Krill. I got uh, to work for a female CEO, which here in the States is a, is a rarity. And I got to work for her for many, many years. And she was an incredible um, uh, woman. She was courageous. She was outspoken. She fought for um, adoption rights, um, LGBTQ rights, all sorts of all sorts of things to make it okay from a corporate standpoint. Um, and, and was also an incredible mother all the way through. And so I've been very lucky to have those two women in my life. Um, from the things you've learned over your career in life, what is the advice you give your two daughters? Um, to fight, you know, to fight for what they believe in, to stand up, to raise their hand. That's one of the, that's the simplest thing that we always say to them. And we always say, we say the same thing to, um, to our son as well. Um, he, he being the middle child gets to sit in between, <laughs> in between two very outspoken sisters. Um, and they, you know, they do all of that, but at the same time, um, 
for our kids having two very intense parents, one of the things that's important too is just to let them enjoy, you know, to look up from technology and let them enjoy, you know, life and the experiences around them. Um, but one thing that I tell not only my daughters, but also um, young women when I get to meet with them is that we live in a place that's a privileged place. Um, oftentimes, when I'm talking to people, women have gone, young women have gone to privileged schools. Um, and I don't mean private schools, but public schools, but compared to in other places, young girls don't ever make it through high school or primary, secondary school. And um, it sounds awfully serious, but I think it's important is that is that it's our responsibility to stand up for all of those other people um, as women, and I don't just mean women, but I mean human rights, for us to stand up for them and do what we can do because we live in a place of privilege. We live in a place where um, where we have so many things, and could it be better? Maybe, yes, but it's our responsibility to to stand up for all those people who cannot or who don't have a voice and need to have a voice. What piece of advice would you give your 14-year-old self? Oh, I would I would say to um, trust myself more, to to be sure of myself more. I feel like in many respects, I spent I spent sort of a good nine years um, being a very good daughter and listening <laughs> to you know listening to my family when I probably could have gotten there just a tiny bit faster had I had I just trusted myself a little bit more. But, you know, I can't complain. <laughs> Lisa, this has been a fascinating career. Thank you so much Thank you. for sharing all of this knowledge and wisdom uh, of a uh, beautiful career. Um, all the best to you, and thank, thank you. you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. Before you go, here's a few more things. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the Role Models Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and your favorite podcasting app. If you'd like to support, please rate this podcast on iTunes and post a review. This will help other listeners like you find this podcast. And if you have any feedback for us or suggestions for who you want to have on the show, please let us know and reach out on Twitter at Role Models. Thanks.